0: Direct communication is important for conveying information, but learning is more than information intake, especially if the learner is someone who already thinks they understand. People entrenched in their current understanding set their defenses against direct communication and end up conforming the message into the channels of their current understanding of reality. But, indirect communication finds a way in through the back window to confront a person's view of reality. A parable's ultimate aim is to draw in the listener, to awaken insight, to stimulate the conscience, and to move to action. Jesus' parables are prophetic instruments used to get God's people to stop, reconsider their way of viewing reality, and change their behavior. Klein Snodgrass. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Ben Christensen. I belong to him <laughs> and her. And her. Um, And I am currently the interim youth pastor here at Grace. My wife is over there, waving happily. And my girls are somewhere, um, hopefully having fun. Some of you have heard about me, but haven't met me yet. Some of you have heard stories about me from your students who are in the ministry. Many of you, before entering this room didn't even know I was going to be speaking this week. Some of you did know this and had a perception already in your mind of who you thought I was. Some of you are sitting there right now with a perception of who I am based on how I look right now. Did your perception just change a bit? You see, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a drummer in a rock band. I wanted to have long blonde hair with a perm and ear piercings. Very few of those things actually happened in my life. The piercings did happen, but that is as far as my rock star dream went. For the last couple of weeks, the students and I have been in a series on parables. By the way, we meet on Tuesday and Wednesday nights. Oh, look at that. And today I want to share with you a parable, a parable of perception and the changing of that perception. This message was highly influenced by Tim Mackey of the Bible Project, and I want to make sure that I give him credit. And in this parable, you've already met them, but uh, we have a Jewish farmer, let's call him Philbert, and he has a wife, let's call her Hazel. These are not very good Jewish names, but you get the picture. I would like you to imagine with me that you are one of these farmers for the next 26 minutes. Okay? Both of you, Hazel and Filbert, are farmers on your ancestral land up in Galilee in the first century. You live up in the hills, and your home looks down on the Sea of Galilee. It is a small town, but from your hillside you can see other small towns because it's like this huge, gigantic amphitheater. Now, it's not like you can yell to the people on the other side, but you can see the other side, maybe 10 miles away. Everything's close-knit, and everyone around has all these family ties. You've had this land for generations, hundreds of years, Um, And for these hundreds of years, your people have been inhabiting this land. Basically, since the exile, your ancestors have planted roots here. This is the land God promised Abraham. Your ancestors lived here. And we've been living here now for at least the last three centuries or so, uninterrupted since the return from the exile. Your life is dominated by the fields and by family, and by synagogue. And in all of those contexts, you are singing the Psalms. You grow up, and you tell your kids the stories of the prophets, and the stories of the kings of Israel, the stories of the scriptures. This is your media. This is what you do at night. You sing, and you tell stories. Shema. It's Shema style. When you get up, when you lay down, when you walk, when you go out, and when you go in. Shema Yisrael is a Jewish prayer known as the Shema that serves as a centerpiece of the morning and evening Jewish prayer services. But what's the story about? Well, this story is about the God who gave your family this land and how he's not just the God of your tribe, but the creator of all living things. He chose your family to be the vehicle of his work among the nations to bring blessing to those nations. But there's a strange thing where there is this paradox or this problem in your family. And it's, your, it's a problem in your family story because God gave our family this land, right? And what our ancestors did was turn away from God. And they were unfaithful to him. So he gave them over to exile, and he allowed these foreign nations to come oppress and take over the land. And that started with Assyria up around the Sea of Galilee. And the Sea of Galilee was the first section of the promised land taken over and annexed by the Assyrian Empire in the 700s BC. And then just remember the cycle of empires after that. You had Babylon, Persia, Greece, you know, that whole history. And over time, you've seen a number of powerful influencers come through your land. And in your day now, it's the Romans. They're everywhere. They're like in your little town, too. At least the tax collectors are and the soldiers that protect their tax collector booth. So, yeah, when you harvest your wheat, you have to go take a whole wagon load of it down to the tax collector booth. That's not for you to use or to sell, but you have to go take it to the tax collector checkpoint. You and your wife are not happy about this. all right? It's excessive. All your cousins have actually had to sell their land because they can't pay their taxes. And now they have to continue to work on their own land, but now they are slaves to some Roman landowner who probably lives in Tiberias or somewhere like that. And these tax collectors, they're corrupt. They add a little bit extra to the tax each time you pay. Kind of like when you go see a concert and there's a little service fee. What is that? That's what Matthew, the tax collector, used to do before he followed Jesus. Back to our little Jewish couple. For the last 40 years, you've been living under Roman occupation. You live in, militarized, in a militarized zone, and taxes keep going up. Let's say this is right near the birth of Jesus, around 4 BC. Yeah, maybe 5. Or something. So 160 years ago, the Maccabeans took over and made a free Israelite state in that land that lasted about 100 years. They took it over from the Syrians. And there's this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes who is ticking everybody off. All right? I didn't make that up. We actually read about him in the book of Daniel in chapter 11. So by the time the Maccabean state had internally imploded from assassinations and coups and all these plots, people trying to take each other over, the state had become so weak that when the Romans came along and they arrived on the scene, they just scooped it right up. And they established a puppet king. Just imagine a Muppet on my hand. And this guy, this Muppet, who was just ready and waiting, was a half-Jewish, half-Edomite, named Herod the Great, who actually isn't Roman at all. He's a Semitic tribe chieftain who strategized his way to the top, and he became friends with the Roman powers. The point is, you're on your own land, and you own it. You have a compromise leader, who doesn't represent your interests, and you have Roman militarization everywhere. Taxes are heavy. People are going into debt. People are being sold into slavery. Basically, I'm trying to highlight features that are going to come up in the parables of Jesus. You have debt, slavery, selling land, acquiring land, working as a manager of someone else's land. This is life in Galilee. You have dreams of finding treasure. And of course, just farming. There's fig trees, olive trees, fruit, wheat, harvest time, seed time, and some food preparation parables. And then just the normal day of baking bread, sweeping your house, looking for lost coins you dropped somewhere. This is life, and it's hard. It's really hard. And there are many regions of the world that are like this. They're occupied zones by an imperial power. There's a lot of poverty. This is part of the human story. However, fueled by the hope of the scriptural story that you were raised on, your people have hope that God's going to send a ruler. He's going to do something. He's going to do what Isaiah said. He's going to come back and dwell in the temple in Zion and kick out the bad guys He's going to send a king. Yes, the sovereign Lord is coming in power. He will rule with a powerful arm. See, he brings his reward with him as he comes. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will carry the lambs in his arms, holding them close to his heart. He will gently lead the mother sheep with their young. You live by that hope, a hope for a king, a king that would one day come and rescue you and your people, a long-awaited king, an expected king that would triumphantly come and wipe out your enemies. So two things that our farmers are struggling with right now, okay? Uh, One is their occupation. Two is there's a lot of poverty. And their scriptures are hoping for a time where these will cease. A hope for God's presence back among us, when the temple is recognized as the home of the creator God, and all Israel and all nations see it as the capital of the world. And inspired by this hope, there are movements of Jews who have chosen to rebel. They go hide up in the hills and they perform raids. And in a few decades, these rebels would be, came to be called the Daggers. Sounds like a gang name. The Sikari. And the Daggers are the Zealots. And because like Phineas and like Elijah, they were full of violent zeal and passion for Israel's God to be honored among the nations. And actually, you know of a couple of your second cousins who have gone missing. The last you heard, they were seen running up into the caves and they now want a revolution too. They want the kingdom of God. And this gang has a slogan like, the kingdom of God, Now." Alright, that's a bit intense, right? But this kingdom of God movement, it's interesting. One movement was led by a guy named Simon Bar-Giora. And they actually went out to the Jordan River to reenact the crossing of the Jordan River by Joshua. And they thought they were going to bring the new Israel. All right? And you just heard also recently that there's this other dude named John the Baptizer who is down by the river doing the same thing. But it's different. He's actually calling people to repent from all the years of unfaithfulness to Israel's God. He's not a military leader. That other guy, he was. And they both seemed to go down to the Jordan River where Joshua had led the people into the land. So this is all happening. But then you've heard, there's this new guy in town. An itinerant prophet and teacher touring the rural villages around Galilee. And he is announcing that God's rule and reign is arriving in Israel here and now. And you've heard stories that he could heal the blind, that there are people tortured by evil, and Jesus has freed them. There was even this guy, he's living in a graveyard, who would mutilate himself, but then he got a job fishing down at the lake, and he's healthy now. I mean, you hear about these things. And then one day you're bringing in a load of wheat, And you hear, that guy's in town. He's just down the road. Why are we whispering? (laughs) His name is Jesus of Nazareth. Let's go hear him. So Philbert grabs another farmer and they go down there. And there's this big crowd. And you can barely see him. But you can hear he's teaching. And this is what you hear him say. The kingdom of God is like a farmer who scatters seed on the ground. And night and day, while he's asleep or awake, the seed sprouts and grows. But he does not understand how it happens. And the earth produces the crops on its own. First a leaf blade pushes through, and then the heads of wheat are formed. And finally the grain ripens. And as soon as the grain is ready, the farmer comes and harvests it with a sickle. For the harvest time has come. And to put the sickle in means basically to start cutting down the harvest, right? That's what the kingdom of God is like. He is tending to his garden of people and waiting for the right time to harvest. So, Philbert looks over to this other farmer to see if he's hearing what he's hearing. And the other farmer looks back wide eyed. Oh, wait, he's speaking again. What is he saying? What's he saying? How can I describe the kingdom of God? What story should I use to illustrate it? Ah, it is like a mustard seed planted in the ground. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of all garden plants. It grows long branches and birds can make nests in its shade. And Jesus used many similar stories and illustrations to teach the people as much as they could understand. In fact, in his public ministry, he never taught without using parables. But afterward, when he was alone with his disciples, he explained everything to them. Now what Jesus is doing is creating more questions than answers, in a way, right? Especially if you are really actively waiting for the kingdom of God. This kingdom of God isn't some abstract idea. It's not a religious principle like in the Merriam-Webster dictionary definition. It's not a moral attitude. It's waiting for something very real to happen in human history. As a nation, you are anticipating this. And if you're really invested in it, maybe you've moved up into those caves in the hills. But you, you're still not that invested. You're still working the fields. You're trying to figure it out. You want it to come. And Jesus comes, and he's talking about the kingdom, and you're like, what does Jesus have to say? I want to understand what he means by the kingdom of God is here. And according to Jesus... The kingdom is like a man who farms, and it's like a seed that grows. A small seed becomes a large tree, and birds can hang out in it. That's cool. And then Philbert goes home, and he shares everything he just experienced and heard to his wife, Hazel. He remembers everything Jesus said, and he shares it to her word for word. And you can see Filbert is all excited talking over supper, right, with his wife. Lasagna is on the table and everything. And he's all animated, and she hasn't seen him like this in a long time. And then, Hazel, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is like me, like a farmer who waits for the crop that grows, and then he harvests it. That's me. Stage by stage, Filbert is telling it back to Hazel. And he remembers, oh, yeah, it was interesting. He said, there's this detail that the farmer doesn't himself know how it grows. It just grows in its own time and way in kind of a mysterious way. And then all of a sudden, it's ready. What did Jesus mean? I mean, sometimes I wish the harvest would grow a little more quickly. But sometimes I wish it would not go so quickly because I have to have time to deal with my other fields. And Philbert is like, I don't actually care how this works. It just works. And if you're a first century farmer, I don't think you're sitting around agonizing about why. Or, well, maybe you are. Maybe, because some years it doesn't grow as well. So you're like, man, I wish I understood this more so I can make sure next year, next harvest, it's really great. But who knows? And the mustard seed story is about this contrast of small to great. And he emphasizes it like a little seed that's tiny, but then it becomes huge. So it's tiny. And you wouldn't think that a huge thing would come from it. But then a huge thing does come. And then that's both similar and different to a guy who sows seed and then it grows. But it grows at a pace and in a way that's mysterious. But it eventually does come to completion. So at this point, if you're Hazel, you could just be like, I don't have time for this, dude. And be like, this Jesus guy, he's weird. But instead, Hazel ponders it for a moment. What does it mean? let's go clean the stables. So you go and clean the stables. But something, something is bugging Filbert about this whole Jesus thing. You see, Filbert grew up on the Hebrew Scriptures. And he remembers Isaiah 55, where God compares his word, the word that promises the new exodus, and the freedom of the new covenant, and the new creation for our people. And Isaiah said that God's word is like a seed. That when he sows it in the ground, it grows a plant and does not return to him empty. And then Philbert also remembers that strange dream that Daniel interprets in Daniel chapter 4 about a big tree that the birds of the air nested in. It's a tree that would get cut down, but wait, that, that was in Babylon. But then you remember, Daniel also said, yeah, that tree gets cut down, and it gets replaced by the kingdom of God. Whoa. Okay, so this Jesus guy, maybe he's not so crazy. Maybe Jesus has been meditating on the Hebrew scriptures. Maybe these are like little encoded Hebrew Bible parables. Maybe they are little condensed stories that, for those who will get the time to ponder it, he's actually saying something really profound, but in a concealed way. So, Philbert, as he farms, he's thinking about these parables and he's thinking about Isaiah, thinking about God's word as a seed. And he's pondering God's word about the new Exodus and the new kingdom of God that would come after exile. And as he wonders about these things, he's thinking, yeah, the kingdom of God, this thing I'm waiting for, this huge moment in human history where I'm no longer under Roman occupation, and this new kingdom where it all seems that there's going to be a new type of abundance, a new type of human heart, a new type of all these things, this thing, this movement, this kingdom, it starts really small. And there's something about it that's small, but it's, beca- it's going to become great. Also, how it grows, I'm not going to understand. How is it going to come to be? Maybe that's what Jesus wants me to appreciate so philbert goes to bed and he gets up day after day after day after day and it's just slowly 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 developing until it's ready and it will be ready and maybe this Jesus is on to something. God's sure taking his sweet time, though. Maybe Jesus is telling us something about the long time that we've been waiting, and God's ways and timeline might be very different from our ways and timeline. Filbert says to himself, you know, I think if that Jesus guy comes back, I think I'm going to go back And I'm going to bring Hazel with me next time. I think she'll like him. You see, Jesus would call Filbert somebody who has ears to hear. Because someone who doesn't have ears to hear will just be like, I don't have time for this. This guy's crazy. And that's how many people responded to Jesus. Jesus. But then there were other people who were impressed that there was something here with this man and that the signs and wonders he performed and the teachings and his parables gave them a new way of thinking about what they thought they already knew. And so they kept going back. And now they have questions. Because as Filbert, the little figure in our parable within a parable, As he goes back to town more and he hears Jesus more and more, he also begins to observe Jesus' behavior. And his signs and his wonders, and how he invites all these really suspect people to eat meals together. A tax collector? The guy who took my taxes last year, Matthew? He goes to Matthew's house? And he invites prostitutes? And then there's a couple of Pharisees, and then those fishy fishermen. And they all end up eating together. Like, that's fine, but it's weird. And Filbert works on his farm day in and day out. And he sees the changes of the harvest happen. And all the while that he's working, he wonders about the future. His future. And he thinks about Jesus... And whether this Jesus guy is going to be a part of it. If anyone has ears to hear, let them understand. When you get up, when you lay down, when you walk, when you go out, and when you go in. Let's pray. The rain and snow come down from the heavens and stay on the ground to water the earth. They cause the grain to grow, producing seed for the farmer and bread for the hungry. It is the same with my word I send it out, and it will always produce fruit. It will accomplish all I want it to, and it will prosper everywhere I send it. Lord, I love your simple story of the sower with all its close attention to the soil, its movement from the knowledge to the knower. It takes on the tenacity of toil. I feel the fall of seed, a sower scatters, so equally available to all. Your story takes me straight to all that matters, yet understands the reasons why I fall. Oh, deepen me where I am thin and shallow. Uproot in me the thistle and the thorn, Keep far from me that swiftly snatching shadow that seizes on your seed to mock and scorn. Oh, break me open, Jesus. Set me free. Then find and keep your own good ground in me. Then find and keep your own good ground in me. Amen.